Hi, my name is Dr. Karina Wynn. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Emory University, and today I'll be talking about how temperature impacts parasite transmission and the effectiveness of public health interventions. It may come as no surprise to many of you, but the Earth is warming, and the steady warming of our planet has impacted our human health, our local and global economies, and our ecosystems. In this video from NOAA, which shows the global temperature compared to the 20th century average, as time has progressed, the Earth has gotten warmer and warmer and warmer. Uh, as a disease ecologist and parasitologist, one of the factors of global climate change that I'm most concerned about is how temperature impacts parasite transmission and the effectiveness of public health interventions. So how exactly does parasite transmission how is that impacted by temperature? Before I get to the parasite part, what I want to introduce are some of these common organisms that you may have encountered before. We have snails, we have tsetse flies, mosquitoes that you've likely encountered in your own backyard. Uh, and although these organisms look really different and inhabit different environments, one thing that they do have in common is that they are ectotherms, meaning that they cannot regulate their own body temperature and are entirely susceptible to environmental conditions. Now, something you may not have thought about is that these organisms can also harbor parasites that you may not recognize. So schistosomiasis, leishmaniasis, elephantiasis, sleeping sickness, these are all neglected tropical diseases, which are human diseases caused by parasites that predominantly occur in developing countries in tropical and subtropical climates where these organisms occur. And in 2015, the World Health Organization estimated that over 1 billion people, that's 13% of the world's population, is infected with at least one neglected tropical disease. So in this map, which shows the number of individuals needing treatment from at least one neglected tropical disease, increasing in dark green, there are millions of people worldwide who need treatment from neglected tropical diseases. And moreover, many of these individuals live in tropical and subtropical climates, which again are expected to be impacted by global climate change. So hopefully I've convinced you at this point that there are many common organisms, snails, mosquitoes, tsetse flies, and these organisms can harbor parasites. And that both parasites and these hosts that harbor them are ectotherms that can be impacted by temperature. And many of their traits, such as survival and reproduction, will therefore be impacted by temperature and global climate change. But what exactly is a parasite? Well, consider this analogy. Do you have a Netflix account? Well, imagine that your parents have a Netflix account and you're using your parents' account, but they don't really watch Netflix at all. So you're receiving a benefit while they're paying for this subscription that they're not using. And in fact, you're being a parasite. And this is exactly what parasites do. Specifically, they're defined as organisms that live in or on another live organism. They depend on that organism for habitat and or resources, 
And lastly, they incur direct negative effects on the organisms that they inhabit. So going back to one of my original examples, the parasites that cause schistosomiasis, elephantiasis, and sleeping sickness, these parasites also harm the hosts that they infect. And eventually when they get to us, they harm us as well. I'm particularly interested in snails and the parasites that cause human schistosomiasis. So what is schistosomiasis? This is a parasite that cycles between humans and snails and individuals become infected when they come into contact with infested waters. Currently, more than 200 million people are infected with this parasite and more than 800 million people are at risk of contracting this parasite. And more than 90% of cases occur in Africa. And although this disease is easily treatable and actually costs between only 20 to 30 cents, reinfection is extremely common and children often carry the highest burden of disease. In this photo that you see, this, is, this was taken at Lake Victoria in Tanzania where schistosomiasis is endemic. And children, as I stated, often carry the highest burden of disease due to activities such as swimming, bathing, and it's extremely easy for them to become reinfected with this parasite, even if they are treated. And over time, chronic infection can cause liver damage, kidney failure, etc. And these symptoms can actually trap individuals in poverty. So let's break down the life cycle a little bit. When individuals are infected with this parasite, adult worms will produce eggs, which will be excreted into water bodies via urine or feces, depending on the species of schistosomes. These eggs will then hatch into myricidia, which is the first life stage of the parasite. These myricidia will then go on to infect snails, and these snails will then produce cercaria, which is the second life stage of the parasite. Cercaria will then go on to infect individuals who come into contact with infested waters and the life cycle starts all over again. And what I want you to know is that this parasite really spans both humans in which it is subjected to a very stable temperature, but much of its life cycle is also spent in the aquatic environment where it's subject to variable temperature. And so when we're asking and thinking about how might temperature impact transmission, what I'm looking at are these parts of the life cycle that occur in the water. So why does temperature matter? Well, parasites and hosts all have traits that have specific measurable responses to temperature. These are called thermal response curves. And take, for example, a trait like reproduction. At low temperature, reproduction might also be low, but as temperature increases, there'll be eventually be a point where maximum reproduction occurs. This is called the thermal optimum or the T-opt for that trait. But consider that parasites and hosts have many, many different traits. So take for example, reproduction and mortality. And all of these traits will have different responses to temperature, and subsequently different thermal optimums. And overall, the combination of all of these different 
thermal responses and their thermal optimums will combine to influence overall transmission risk, which is what I'm mostly interested in. So one of the first questions that I wanted to ask in this study is, can we build an epidemiological model that incorporates the effect of temperature on parasite and host traits? And mostly again, looking at the effects of temperature on parts of the life cycle that are impacted by temperature, right? And this makes sense. So what do we do? We broke down the life cycle and incorporated the same individuals, right? Humans, snails, and the parasite. And so here in this figure, we have susceptible humans, and the arrows simply indicate individuals can leave or enter the system. So in this parasite system, we can have susceptible humans enter in or leave. But if susceptible humans, if they are infected, they become infected humans. And infected humans can go on to produce myricidia, which is that first life stage of the parasite. Myricidia can leave the system, but they can also infect susceptible snails. And again, there can be snails that enter the system or leave, but if snails become infected, they then become infected snails. And these infected snails can also leave the system, but then they can also go on to produce cercaria, which is that second life stage of the parasite. And cercaria can also leave the system, but they can also go on to infect susceptible humans, and so on and so forth. And so again, when we're looking at the life cycle, we have the human body, which represents a stable temperature environment for the parasite, and also the aquatic environment where the parasite is susceptible to variable temperature. So one of the first things that we did was look at both published data and performed our own experiments and looked at the response of Mercidia cercaria and snails looked at their reproduction across temperatures. And so you see here with temperature on the x-axis and recruitment or reproduction on the y, that Mericidia, cercaria, and snails all have different responses to temperature. And we did the same thing for mortality for all of these three key players in the life cycle. And the key point that I want you to take from these two figures is that Mericidia, that first life stage of the parasite, Cercaria, that second life stage of the parasite, and snails, the host that harbor them, they all have different responses to temperature when we're looking at their reproduction and their mortality. This led us to the discovery that the overall optimum temperature for transmission is 21.7 degrees Celsius for schistosomiasis which is a really, really cool result. So here we have temperature on the x-axis, it's showing the thermal response for overall transmission, and we have transmission risk on the y. So now that we identified the optimum temperature for transmission, how do we actually go about interrupting transmission? There are a variety of public health interventions or control measures that are already put in place to try to interrupt this parasitic disease, and we modeled three of them. So first, you can actually treat humans, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk. You can also get rid of snails, right? You can use snail control and remove them from the system. Lastly, you can also treat water bodies to get rid of cercaria, that second life stage of the parasite. And so we hypothesize that all three of these different interventions would decrease transmission risk. 
but we also hypothesize that targeting snails or cercariae may also impact the thermal optimum for transmission because these two parts of the life stage are susceptible to temperature. So what do we find? So in this figure, we have treatment rate ranging from zero to 100%. On the Y, we have a ratio of transmission risk when the control method is applied over the, the transmission risk when no control is applied at all. And our hypothesis was supported. So all three interventions decreased transmission risk, but the degree to which they did was different. So circarial control actually had the smallest decrease, whereas human treatment actually reduced transmission risk by tenfold. And amazingly, we found that snail control reduced transmission risk by over a hundredfold, which is huge when we're thinking about decreasing transmission risk to humans. But what about the effect of these different control methods on the overall optimum for transmission. So again, we have treatment rate ranging from zero to 100% on the x-axis, and on the y, we now have the difference between the thermal optimum of applying the control method to the thermal optimum when no control is applied. And so here, we found that, again, treating humans doesn't impact the overall optimum for transmission at all. And this makes sense because humans represent that stable temperature environment. But what was cool and super interesting is applying circarial control actually increased the thermal optimum for transmission. And then when we looked at snail control, this actually shifted the thermal optimum for transmission up to 1.3 degrees C. And this was essentially because removing additional snails, right, additional snail mortality actually changed the contribution of this trait to the overall temperature transmission relationship. And so it changed the overall optimal temperature for transmission. So the results of our model suggested that regional surface water temperatures will actually shape seasonal schistosomiasis dynamics. So to test this hypothesis, we extracted surface water temperatures from a previous study and projected transmission risk from 1965 to 2014 using this historical data. And we looked at two regions that are endemic for schistosomiasis. So Southwest Burkina Faso, which represents a kind of semi-arid climate, and also Southeast Uganda, which represents a tropical climate. And these are just shown as A and B on the map. Okay, so the first thing that we did was plotted mean decadal monthly stream temperature. So on the x-axis, you have just months of the year, and on the y, you have stream temperatures. And then the different colored lines simply represent the different decades going all the way up to 2014. So here in panel A, when we're looking at Southwest Burkina Faso, we do see seasonal variation. So there are certain times of the year when stream temperatures are low, this increases throughout the summer months and then decreases towards the winter months. This is in sharp contrast to Southeast Uganda, where temperatures are actually pretty consistent throughout the year and are actually very close to the thermal optimum for schistosomiasis transmission, which we've depicted as the dotted line uh, on the figure. 
And what's important to note here is that Southeast Uganda is actually very close to the equator. So it makes sense that stream temperatures there will be relatively consistent throughout the year. Or as in Burkina Faso, where there is more seasonality, then accordingly, stream temperatures will also show seasonal variation. Now, what happens when we apply these stream temperatures to look at how transmission risk is affected? So again, we have months of the year on the x-axis, and now we have transmission risk on the y. So in southwest Burkina Faso in panel A, there's, again, seasonal differences in transmission risk. Whereas in southeast Uganda, you have pretty consistent and high transmission risk throughout the year. And these trends make sense when we look at stream temperatures. So in southwest Burkina Faso, when stream temperatures are close to the thermal optimum for transmission, you have higher transmission risk. When stream temperatures greatly exceed the thermal optimum for transmission, you actually get a very great reduction in transmission risk. This is again in sharp contrast to Uganda, where stream temperatures are almost always near the thermal optimum for transmission. And accordingly, transmission risk is almost always high. And so when we married this experimental data with our model, we essentially found that there's a correlation between the stream temperatures being close to the thermal optimum for transmission and transmission risk. And the results suggest that as global climate change increases stream temperatures, areas that are currently above the thermal optimum for transmission will likely have a reduction in transmission risk. Conversely, in areas that are currently at or, or below the thermal optimum for transmission, warming associated with global climate change may actually increase transmission risk in these areas. Okay, so just to recap, we found that parasite and host traits have specific different responses to temperature. And when we combine these different responses, we're able to identify the overall thermal optimum for transmission at 21.7 degrees C for schistosomiasis. Next, we found that snail control had the largest effect on both decreasing transmission risk and also shifting the optimum temperature for transmission. And when we applied this to a retrospective study that had tracked stream temperatures in these areas where schistosomiasis is endemic, we found that regions that have seasonal variation will also show seasonal variation in transmission risk. And that regions moving closer to the thermal optimum for transmission may actually have increased transmission risk in the future. So what I've hopefully imparted today is that temperature is a really important driving factor of parasite transmission and will effectively impact also public health interventions. And so considering regional seasons and the timings of interventions in the future will improve human health outcomes as we experience a changing climate. Thanks.